Hello and welcome to episode 40 of The Thing About Golf, a podcast series from Golf Australia magazine that explores the fundamental question of why people are so drawn to this, the greatest of all stick and ball games. My name's Rod Murray, and alongside John Huggan, we take turns at putting this apparently simple, though somehow vexing question, to a range of people in the golf space, from players and administrators to writers and entrepreneurs, and every type of golfer in between. On episode 40, we're delving into the world of administration, and while my special guest is far from a household name in the game, he may be the architect of one of its most important advancements. David Greenhill's official title is State Services Manager for Golf Australia. But let's be honest, titles tell you almost nothing about people. In a 30-year career, David has had many different titles. But the truth is, he could have been given just one at the very beginning, and it would have held true for the last three decades. Because what David really is, is a passionate advocate for golf. It was back in 2011 while walking his dog that David had an idea that has helped to change the golf landscape globally. The epiphany was to combine the men's and women's Vic Opens, and that tournament, nine years later, has morphed into a European and LPGA Tour event lauded by all who have attended. But it's also the blueprint for tournaments across the globe and at all levels of the game. As you'll hear in this interview, David is thoughtful, articulate and humble, but you will also clearly hear his passion. A lifetime spent in the service of the game has done nothing to diminish his love for it, and golf is better for his presence. Now, just before we hear from David, a couple of quick reminders. If you haven't already, go and listen to John Huggins' excellent interview with the RNA CEO, Martin Slumbers, from the last episode. Also, make sure to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. If you don't know how to do that, get in touch with me directly and I'll personally help you. My email, rod at talkinggolf.com. That's just the one G in talkinggolf, rod at talkinggolf.com. Follow us on Twitter at at thinggolf, capital T-H-I-N-G, capital G-O-L-F, or me at at rod underscore Murray. That's M for Mary, O-R-R-I. And you can also follow Huggy at at John Huggin. Now, enough of all that. Let's get to our chat with David Greenhill. David Greenhill, we're, uh, first thing we have to do, as always, on the thing about golf, it's quite the commitment, so thank you for taking some time to chat. Oh, you're Appreciate welcome, it. Rod. I'm happy to be here. I suppose the clue's in the title, the thing about golf. Before I ask you that question, which is normally my jumping-off point, I don't know anywhere near enough about you. People in Melbourne golf would know plenty about you. You're a bit of a, bit of a known entity in Melbourne golf, so this is going to be a great journey of exploration today. But what I want to ask you about first the one thing I do know about you, which I reckon you're going to try and deflect, right? the Vic Open. Oh, the Vic Open, yes. Is that your idea? Yes. Combined Vic Open? Uh, the Combined Vic Open was my idea, but um, success has many um, parents, and the idea was embraced by a number of different people. So I, whilst I thought of the idea, um, and it goes all the way back to the embryonic idea, which we'll, we'll talk about, um, there's a lot of people that have helped along the way in different ways to grow the event to, to where it is now. So I won't pretend to say that it's all solely down to me because it absolute, absolutely isn't. And we can talk about some of the people that um, contributed um, along that journey. But um, the idea really came about out of necessity and um, needing to do something different. Uh, in 2010, November 2010, men's women 
women's amateur golf in Victoria came together. So the old Victorian Golf Association, which was the men's body, and Women's Golf Victoria, which was the women's body amalgamated after 100 odd years of operating independently. That would have gone just smoothly with no problems at all, I'm sure, uh, don't uh, <laughs> No, look, I think there's a lot of goodwill on both sides. It was just really a case of... It has to be, doesn't it? Had, it has yeah, it has to be. To be. And, and for, for the betterment of golf in Victoria, that had to happen, and it did, which was great. And coincidentally, in November 2010, VGA, WGV amalgamated, and in January 2011, we ran what turned out to be the last standalone men's Vic Open um, at Spring Valley in, in uh, and the event went well, but it had been, um, you know, hanging in there. It was about a $120,000 prize money event. Um, it, it got a little bit of interest and, and served a purpose, but, you know, compared to the halcyon days of the, the Vic Open that I grew up, you know, watching um, back in the 70s and, and 80s, um, it certainly wasn't the event that, that it once was. And at the end of that event in 2011, um, you know, we were struggling from a corporate support point of view. We were struggling from a government point of view. And in some discussions we had with the Victorian state government, they really challenged us to go away and think of something new and different. You've been selling us the same product for a very long time. Yeah. We'd like it to be something Yeah, else. we want to be – yeah. You, you, you know. And I was also sort of thinking at the time, well, we also need to um, show the golf world, the Victorian golf world, that men and women's golf had come together. And that, Genuinely, not just – No, not just in name and face yeah. value. And – I do. I did remember that back um, in the early '90s when I started working in golf, there was a Victorian Women's Open. So I thought about the Victorian Women's Open. It'd be great to bring that back. Um, this all happened walking my dog around Jill's Park Lake, actually, late one night, just sort of thinking about golf and what, you know, what are we going to do with the Vic Open, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I was thinking about the Vic Women's Open. I was thinking about the, the Men's Vic Open. I'm thinking, well, why don't we just play them together? Like we play golf together at club level like I've played with my mum quite a few times in competitions obviously and other lots of other women over the years in in club comps so it happens at club level why can't we do it at a major level so I went got back from the dog walk that night sat down on the kitchen table and wrote up a a mythical plan as to what this event would look like you know how to be structured um um how many people would play in it, you know, how we'd do the cuts, how we'd maintain the integrity of both titles. So we were basically keeping the men's Vic Open going and we were um, resurrecting the Victorian Women's Open, um, which I think was last played about 1980, uh, sorry, 1992. So I went back to the office the next day and at that point myself and a lovely lady called Bronwyn Young, hello Bronwyn if you're listening, um, we were both sort of interim caretaker CEOs of, of this entity until um, they advertised and appointed a new CEO. So I bounced this idea off Bronwyn and she thought it was a great idea. So we took it to the Interim Golf Victoria board and, and to their credit, they thought it was a great idea and they gave us the green light to go and you know, sound out government, sound out our existing sponsors, sound out um, the existing host club Spring Valley about the idea. And we needed an extra um, venue mm-hmm. just to, with, the, with the format because we were in Melbourne at that point, and everyone thought it was a great idea and were really encouraging. So state government loved it, and they um, they basically said, look, if you can get this to work, we'll keep our commitment going to the event. Um, Spring Valley were great. I went and saw a, a, a general manager, a good mate of mine called John Stamp, who was managing Woodlands Golf Club at the time because we needed... The, you know, just to get it off the ground, in our first year, what we were looking at doing is keeping the men's event going as a 72-hole event, and... 
um, most women's professional events in Australia back then, because it's over 10 years ago now, so it's sort of mm. good time flies, um, were 54 holes. So the plan was to play the first women's round at Woodlands on the Friday, um, play the second women's round at uh, uh, Spring Valley, do a cut on the Saturday night. The men's event would just play their first two rounds at Spring Valley and they do their cut on the Friday night. So we, we could massage the numbers and get it all to fit. And um, away we went. So the, the PGA and ALPG were, were terrifically supportive. Um, they they realised too that we needed to do different things um, uh, in Australia to, to keep professional event professional events going and, and vibrant. And it was it's funny. Like I remember thinking in the lead up to the event, I had a great phone call from Tony Charlton too in the um, week leading up to the, that first joint Vic Open ringing to you know, wish me all the best because, to be fair, Tony was also a catalyst behind this idea because I remember in the 70s my mum, who was a pretty good golfer, Tasmanian women's state player, coming over to Victoria and playing in an amateur, a women's amateur invitational field within the men's Vic Open. Okay. So it's not. this isn't a new idea. It was idea. not heard of. No, that's right. No, this is been exhibitions idea. over the years, obviously. Uh, yeah. Babe Zahari has played in the New South Wales yep. Open. Um, Jan Stevenson and Jane Locke played exhibition matches in Vic Opens in the early 1980s. The difference being, of course, David, those things were an exhibition to create headlines and attract interest. This is a more legitimate, oh, this is a proper, event. proper golf event. <laughs> Two conjunctive golf events. Yeah, proper yeah definitely. So... So, to, but to have someone like Tony Charlton ring you up um, in the in the week, you know, leading up to it, wishing you all the best, and don't ever be afraid to try new ideas and that sort of thing, that was really encouraging. That is fabulous, seriously, because even in golf, I think we sometimes get taken with the idea that golf is full of stodgy old people who aren't willing to change. It's not a hundred percent true. No, they, it's they not. do exist. Yeah, they do. But I'm not sure they're majority, and they're not they're not always the people who are running the game. I don't think. No, that that's true. So that was good. So then the tournament week rolls around, and, and I sort of knew this idea. There's lots of enduring memories from the Vic Open, but I just sort of knew this idea would work on the Monday morning when I turned up at Spring Valley to do player registrations and things. And there were two guys and two girls practice putting on the putting green at Sp- at Spring Valley. And I was just thinking, oh, this is good. So the players are out nice and early to, to get a bit of practice in. And then all four of them walked over together to the first tee and played a practice round together. And I thought, well, there you go. So there's no hesitation from the players going out oh, playing sorry. practice rounds together because they'd probably all grown up playing junior golf together. So that, that sort of gave me an inkling that this thing would work. And then the event, the, the week um, went along and it went pretty well. You know, all of the, we got lucky with the weather. We got... Um, all our numerical calculations figured out. and But the event in its full power probably wasn't really seen until the Sunday um, because even on the Saturday we had um, the men's field played in the morning and the women's field played in the afternoon. But so, but on the Sunday it was – both cuts had been made, alternating groups. Alternating groups, which is um, – I think Joe Clatton from memory won the, um, yeah, the women's championship and Scott Arnold who was a good mate of Ricky Ponting. So Ricky was a test captain at the time. So everything sort of aligned for us, and we had massive crowds. Like, I just remember the, the volume of people. So this was in 2012 oh, yeah. when it first came to light. And it took – from the moment we walked the dog around Gels Park Lake, probably January 2011, it took a pretty much a full year of planning and talking to people. And There's a lot of people to talk to. There's twice as many people to talk to there, as if you're organising the video. There was, and it was new. I um, mean, we wanted to make sure that, you know, financially the model st- – um, um, you know, hung together, but you know the, the event. The event 
didn't just come about because of me. It came about first, firstly because of you know, Bronwyn was really supportive of it. The GV board was really supportive of it. All of those entities that we've just mentioned were supportive of it. And we just had a commitment to make it work, and it was fantastic. But you know, from from there, you know, by that by the time the event was played, Simon Brookhouse had been appointed as CEO to Golf Vic. Um, and Simon was a, a, you know, a real innovator and ideas person. Um, so he, he could see the, the, the strength in, in what we were doing and he's been um, pretty instrumental in growing it further. Like, so shortly after that first one in 2012, the state government loved it. Um, and then we had an approach from 13th Beach to, to take it down there to, to a 36-hole facility, which probably lent itself even better to, to growing the idea. The state government loved the idea of just going regional, regional too, and just getting it out of Melbourne. So it's obviously been based at 13th Beach from 2013 onwards, and it's just grown and grown and grown. And that's on the back of hard work that Simon did. That's on the back of um, some hard work. Uh, um, a marketing uh, manager at GV at the time, now Golf Australia, Greg Oakford, did. It was, it's a real, it was a real collective yeah. team effort, and it, every year it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and probably the other enduring memory because i don't have too much to do with it these days the other enduring memory though i've got of it probably two was probably the first year we were down at 13th beach where the whole idea was together for the whole week um which which was better but i remember seeing a family you know mum and a dad and a boy and a girl wandering around the golf on the sunday and i'm thinking how good is this that the little girl in the family is noticing women playing golf, alternating groups with the, the guys. It's She's going to think that that's normal, which is – it is normal. It should be normal. It should be We'd normal. We'd like it to be normal. We want it to be normal. Um, let's make it normal. Let's make it normal. Uh, and that, to me, was that just rubber stamp. Okay, this is, this is a great idea. And seeing the intangibles, I think, that the event has created, like, you know, there's you know, men's and women's club championships now primarily, but just about most of the clubs I know are all played concurrently, finals on the same day, uh, on a Sunday or whatever it is. You know, we're in Melbourne today. There's pennant being played all over Melbourne, men's and women's pennant being played on, on Sunday. So, you know, I played pennant, well, not very well, but Colts <laughs> pennant when, when I was younger. And, um, you know, I didn't have to take days off work or days off school or university or whatever to do it. And, and I, like, I'm pleased that that now... Um, that now happens, and there's so many other great events. Like the, I remember at the very first Vic Open at Spring Valley, the uh, the men's and women's captain presidents from Riversdale were wandering around watching, and they used what they saw as the catalyst to bring together you know two of Australia's oldest amateur golf tournaments in, in Melbourne, the men's and women's Riversdale Cups, which are now played um, simultaneously over the the Moonbelong weekend in uh, in Melbourne. So it, the Vic Opens had a lot of um, positive influences in golf and especially bringing men's and women's golf together. So that's the thing I think I'm probably proud of most for that little idea. Um, the tournament's, you know, obviously, it's last time it was played because we had a um, year off this year because of the COVID um, situation. But, you know, it's a men's European tour event and it's a LPGA event. You know, who would have thought? Well, in all honesty, who would have thought? It strikes me, David, a couple of things. There's a lot to unpack there. A simple little idea while walking the dog. And it is very simple, isn't it? Even in hindsight, it's a very simple, simple thing. Yeah. It's a much more complex thing to achieve. As you said, there's got to be a lot of people on board and invest in it. 
yeah. legitimately, yeah. not not box ticking. We see a lot of box ticking, I think, in the modern era with the, the Me Too movement and those sorts of things, and people want to get on board and do boxing. You need something legitimate, don't you? And clearly you got that, and that's encouraging. Yeah, the players were really great too. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, the, after the first year, because we're really just putting our toe in the water. Um, and there was it, no guarantee, was there, that it would ever be done again? It could have flopped and could have disappeared. Because you've been a one-off and that was it. But the, the girls were great. And they said, look, if it helps you, we don't object to a 72-hole tournament. We'd love to play more 72-hole tournaments. Go, Great, okay, well, let, let's, let, you know, we want this to be equal, so let's make it equal. And then moving to 13th Beach, we had the two golf courses gave us the capacity to, to increase field size and, and be more equal, which is what it now is. So the way it works these days is that there's the beach course and the creek course and rounds one and two, you play one on one and one on the other. Um, you play one morning, one afternoon, and then you cut, and then we play the, the rest of the weekend um, on the on the beach course. Prize money's equal, which is really important. Um, you know, like I'm the dad of two daughters, very proud dad of two daughters, and I, like equal opportunity and equal pay, equal rights, equal everything is certainly the mantra in our house. So um, that that was a non-negotiable too, too along the way. But you know, the support we had for it, the the all the different people that made a contribution, you know, towards it. To me, it's probably outside of the the real international major events. I don't know why this format's not done more often. It's starting to happen, though, isn't it, David? The European is, Tour is going yeah. to run an event with Annika and yeah. Henrik. There's been some variations on the theme as well. I'll get your thoughts on some of that shortly. But just to go back, quick, firstly, what were some of the logistical challenges? Because immediately, once you've had this idea to do a tournament that's different, well, now you're in uncharted territory. Um, yeah, look, at the end of the day, I've always looked at golf tournaments, whether it be running a you know, junior comp as part of my job. Like I started working um, in golf in 1991 and ran everything from you know, junior summer comps for boys and girls you know, up to Vic Opens. Um, you know, the first Vic Open over um, was associated with was the one that Robert Allenby won later that year as an amateur, which was fantastic. Um, so I always knew that as long as we had a golf course and golfers, we could make it work. Um, it was just juggling the numbers. I remember doing a lot of work with Warren Seville at the ALPG at the time just to see, well, how many women are we going to have play and what's a reasonable size just to see if this works. Because there's, there's a problem right there with Australian women's professional golf, isn't there? They don't actually have enough members week to week to stage a tournament field necessarily. They need their international players to come home and players from other tours. Yeah, and we're to- in 2012, everyone was sort of a bit dubious and, and the women's tournament scene wasn't anywhere near as good as... Um, uh, wasn't as good back then as it is now. No. And that wasn't for the want of the people trying. No, either. no, no, of course not. Um, so, but we just worked in collaboration. We just, we, whatever logistical issue, once we got the numbers crunched as to how we'd make this embryonic thing work in year one, um, every, the PGA were great. I remember working with um, Andrew Langford-Jones and Graham Scott and Simon Budley at the time and, um, you know, put together the template and the, the and the, it really helped the players all knew each other, even the men and women, so that helped. Um, and it just flowed beautifully. And we didn't, you know, we can, right from the word go, we've never had the tournament rope so you could walk along with the players. So we've kept that theme, which is an old Vic Open theme, going back into the 70s and 80s, we've kept that along the way. So, yeah, the logistics side of it didn't really bother me a great deal because it was sort of something that I'd always had to 
juggle with no. just about every event I'd ever run. You've got it, the necessities. You've got the field. Got the you've field, got a golf course. Golf course. The rest of it you can the, figure out. Yeah, the, you know, <laughs> we didn't. We never had grandstands as such. We never had a, a lot of marquees. We had a lot of signage, which we were always. But in a lot of ways, we found cost savings in mm-hmm. running the event like this because all the way along we're thinking, well, it's great that we're not doing two separate events because we, we don't need two lots of signage. We only need one lot of signage. Um, you know, the, probably the only thing, and 13th Beach was a, um, a, a good venue for this reason, is you just need space with double the number of players. That's double the number of people you need on the driving range. So there's a bit of coordinating Caddies, coaches, Co- yeah, all club that. reps. There, everything goes yeah, two yeah, times. Yeah, time. so and you know, now the event you know, is basically 156, 156, you know, equal fields these days. That's a lot of players. Absolutely. Um, so, so now the logistics of it now are far more complex than what it was in its very humble. You got beginnings. out at the right time, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, um, I like I haven't you know, haven't been directly associated with the running of it now for a couple of years. But yeah, the logistically, it's. Um, uh, much much more complicated now, including the fact that you're now working with two international tours. Yeah, and there's a whole lot of extra requirements <laughs> exactly and right. obligations. And there's you know there's player lounges and courtesy cars and, and all, all sorts of demands from players and from tour reps out, outside of Australia yeah. who want certain things to happen. Which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about some of that. Just so that the listeners know, if you hear the odd clanking of the spoon, we're on a chilly com- com- morning here in Melbourne at Commonwealth Golf Club, and we've got a couple of coffees. Two coffees here, here having yeah, but it, it's um well, it's. Typical, and in fact, probably one of the the other good memories of the Vic Open, especially all the years at Thirteenth Beach, was that we've been blessed with, with weather. Not been to a few, and never was. Just blue blue sky Sundays is just fantastic. We've had some wind down there at various times, but yes. we've never had the had sideways wind, rain. Yeah, yeah. As as far as I can remember, we've only ever had one play suspension, and that was on a Saturday as a brief storm went across. But um, yeah, we've been. Been very lucky, and that's you, you do need a bit of luck, of course, when you're running those big events. Golf always relies on a bit of luck to win a golf tournament. You yep. need a bit of luck to yep. win a Wednesday comp. You yep. need a bit of luck. There's always a bit of luck, a- absolutely required. I often say, David, it's my favourite tournament to go to each year, the Vic Open, the, the times that I've been. It's not the most important tournament in Australia, but it's the best tournament. Yep. I'd imagine that's something that would make you quite proud to hear that. Yeah, I look at the. I grew up sort of watching Vic Open, so my, so my link with it was. Um, Mum firstly going off to play, you know, um, so it was basically, I think the Tasmanian girls, it was, they, they threw a coin up in the air, it was whoever was going to accompany Lindy Goggin over to, to play as part of the Tasmanian two-player two team. <laughs> yes, um, and soon her granddaughter, yes, who's on yes, that same track. she's a great player. Actually, it's funny, one of my early memories of golf, like I got into golf because of my family, dad's a retired club pro and mum's obviously a pretty good player, my brother's a course superintendent, so the whole, all four of us do it. Um, but I remember back in the 70s, I probably would have been about 10 or 11 or something, school holidays, and mum says, are you coming with me today? Are you going to caddy for me? I'm playing women's pennant at Royal Hobart. I'm, oh, okay. Who are you playing? Oh, you'll see. So <laughs> we, should we turn up at Royal Hobart? Mum was playing for Claremont, I think it was, where dad was the pro, and um, that, lo and behold, Lindy Goggins playing number one for Royal Hobart. So I think she beat mum pretty easy, but she had about like seven or eight birdies. I'm just thinking, how good is this? How good is this player? This this is the the best. This isn't just. This is one of the best players I've ever seen. Yeah, indeed. and that and that sort of as you, when you're a kid, sort of you know trying to get you know inspiration, and you see a player like that up close. Powerful, um, isn't it? That's quite a powerful. Ah, uh, yeah, and just so she's just so good. Yeah, just just unbelievably good. So I always always remember that. So the the first Vic Open contact was that mum and you know take mum to the airport and going to Melbourne to. Um, 
playing the Vic Open. And then we, we moved over here in 79 when Dad became club pro at Peninsula. Um, then being able to go to the Vic Opens, the, the really, um, you know, I call them the halcyon days, the Tony Charlton extravaganzas at Metropolitan with, you know, the bleach um, blonde Greg Norman playing and barrage balloons flying yeah. across the... He pulled some stunts, didn't he? Yeah, Tony. it was just... Marching bands yeah, and bad marching Was ba- there a plane buzz the course one oh, year? Yeah, and it was... Like, I remember the year Clayton won it, I think. Mike Clayton won it in about 82. Lee Trevino played and just seeing Lee... Man, just, See Lee Trevino. There you go. Like the only time I'd ever seen Lee Trevino before that was on Pro Celebrity Golf or um, at British Opens or whatever. And to see Lee Trevino up close um, was just... Just amazing. Yeah. Launched a career. John Huggan, who was, has been on the show uh, on Thing About Golf some time ago, at what his dad took him. Might have been a Ryder Cup. And they went down to the practice range, and Lee Trevino was just putting on a Lee Trevino show, sure. talk, talking to the few yeah. people that were there watching his yeah. and just To watch him hit these amazing shots with the one club, he'd hit one three feet off the ground and stop it 100 yards out, and then he hit it a mile in there. And John Huggan became hooked for life. Yep. And look at him now. He's one of our premier yeah. golf riders in the well, world. back in those days, at those Vic Opens especially, you could go to the range. And I've st- I still like doing this more so than actually going and watching them mm. play holes. You, they go to the range and they'll talk to you. Like, they'll tell you what they're doing. Like, I remember David Graham once, because my father became club pro at Huntingdale in about 1985 with the Australian Masters. And the, the great years of the Australian Very Masters much. too, from the sort of mid to uh, late 80s onwards. And remember David Graham on the range was just talking to a whole lot of young pros about, well, you know, these are the, you need these high-flighted three-irons at Augusta, and he was just showing how you hit big high fades with three-irons. And the, this is like the old Ballada balls and, yeah. you know, McGregor blades and stuff like that. So you, just unbelievable. So it did a couple of things. It just reminded you how good are these blokes and uh, I'm never going to be any good. <laughs> I, I can't can, do that. I can't do that. <laughs> I, I better keep studying a bit harder, I think, because yeah, right. I ain't going to be making any money what out of it. the administration yeah, for me, I, perhaps. Just a sort of a battling five marker. Well, yeah, you, you're never going to get to that level. But, but yeah, that, that all of those memories um, of, of those Vic Opens is, is carried over. So when I started working in golf in 91 for the – Vic Golf Association initially and being involved the once a year. And it was fun. You know, once a year you, you were running a professional level event. It was fantastic. Um, but all of those memories, you knew what you were the custodian of. You know, you, you were looking after an event that had been around since 1957. You were looking after an event that you loved as a kid. Um, so you better do a good job with it to make sure that it, it kept on going. And, you know, when, when we sort of reached a, a crossroads point, after that 2011 Vic Open, you know, we had to do something special because you didn't want to let it no. let it go. Sadness. It, when that's been your background with the tournament, yeah. incredibly sad to see if it couldn't have been staged yeah. that tournament. Yeah, so. and, it, you know, all the other good things that you like to think that you've been part of from a, an amateur golf perspective, um, whether it be events or rules education or whatever, helping clubs out with different problems. Um, yeah, once a year you, you, you got to concentrate on a, on a really big major event, which was a lot of fun. Listening to you talk about being at the range there at Huntingdale with David Graham and all those halcyon years, it feels like, and I think this is one of the keys to success of the Vic Open, and you hinted at it with that no ropes idea, golf used to be as a spectating experience, in fact, in always, even as a member of the press, a much more intimate mm. sort of a thing, didn't it? At, yeah. At that level, there was much more accessibility. It was more tangible, I think. It's changed a lot over the years, not necessarily for the better in some ways, David. No, I, I, look, I hate rope tournaments, to be honest. 
It's the danger for the Vic Open, isn't it, that it might become a victim of its own success where it attracts the sort of player where it becomes perhaps yeah, a necessity? maybe, but it's actually safer to, to run it unroped, I reckon. Tell me more. Um, well, you, the minute you start to corral people behind ropes, well, then they're sitting ducks for, for balls that are flying everywhere. And predominantly my experience with the Vic Open, whether it be as a spectator, as a kid, or, you know, working on the event over the years is that having players having spectators walk behind players is a hell of a lot safer than having them propped up the fairway held between ropes um 13th beach is a bit unique too because a few snakes down there in the rough so i don't (laughs) i don't really want my spectators running it worrying around the the rough at 13th beach on on hot days but um now primarily i I actually I, i just like the idea of people being able to walk close to the players you can chat to them if they feel like it you can listen. Which they surprisingly often do. Well, it's, we, when you know, when we play our own round of golf, whether it be your local municipal or wherever, you know, you're generally talking to people between shots. You can't, you know, be zen-like for the whole, you know, time that you're out there. Yeah. Um, so golf pros are, are no different than men and women. And but yeah, the, like to me, um, it's just it's more intimate. It's more personable. Um, and then and. I don't think it's any less safe. In fact, I think it's more safe having crowds walk with and behind the players and, you know, propped here, there and everywhere. As a spectator, it's a far better golf experience, isn't it? Because there's no better place to watch golf from, from directly close. behind yeah. a player. Yeah. right? Even in your own four ball on a Wednesday <laughs> or a Saturday. Yep. It's the best way to see what the ball actually the ball does, does in the air. Yeah, and how they flight shots, especially, say, down at 13th Beach where you've got a bit of breeze around normally, so mm. you've got to flight the ball a little bit. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it takes me back to, you know, the, I used to go and prop out on the range years yeah. ago watching the good players just, just hit – Ball after ball after ball. You're a cross-generational golfer, a bit like me, and mm. people of our sort of age, age from, yep. from that blade that era. and Persimmer yep. and Ballada into to what we see now. Yep. What are the what are the pluses and the minuses of modern golf and old golf versus each other? Um, what's better and what's maybe not well, better? Golf's easier at club level now than I think it's ever been, and I think that's a good thing. Um, you know, when I started playing, and you'd be the same. We never had lob wedges. We never had rescue clubs. We had Drivers at GC, you know, it's, you're either really on or you're really off. <laughs> Two speeds, fast yeah, and stop. Yeah, hope, yeah. Ter- um, I, I don't think iron irons to me are a bit better, but that, that's the, the technical changes have come in the lofted clubs and the driving clubs essentially, and the golf ball is, you know, it goes. You know, I can hit the ball probably the same distance now as what I could when I was. You know, thirty in my twenties, you know, thirty years ago. So it's infinitely better in all ways. The ball, though, it's more durable. Yeah, it spins better. Yeah, it's more reliable. Yeah, the yeah, way it flies. You get you get at least a round or two out of them, and all of that sort of stuff. So I, I think they're all ticks. The the, the biggest problem with um, equipment, or the ball particularly, is at the top end of the market. Probably two to three percent of mm. elite professionals, elite amateurs, who can generate that that amount of club head speed to get the technology advantages out of the ball. Um, so, you know, if you had one wish for golf, I guess it would be to either create a tournament ball that takes 10% off it or create a ball for all golfers, which, you know, takes 10% off it for everybody because 10% of, you know, my 180 straight isn't really going to matter that much. No, that's true. That's a, that's a hard sell, as you know. It's not what we came together to no. talk about, but that's a hard sell uh, yeah. uh, to tell people you yeah. take distance. But a tournament ball was probably be the most logical um, solution to the problem because you can't have. I think it's a shame in a lot of ways that we can't 
There's two. There's two issues to it. You can't have golf clubs having to. You know, St Andrews apparently the the new 17th tee is now back in the driving range. Which, which there are five tees on the old course that are not on the, the golf, golf course, course for the and Open. That's, and that's 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 no good. You it speaks for itself, doesn't it? Yeah, it's silly. <laughs> so we can't have that. Plus, I haven't refereed at too many Australian Opens in the last couple of years, but the last time I did, which would have been about 2017 thereabouts. I just really, walking around for four days with some reasonable players watching them play, I'm just thinking I can't relate to what these players do anymore. Whereas, you know, going back to those early Mm -hmm. Vic Opens, watching Trevino, et cetera, manoeuvre balls, flight balls, I could still relate to it. And I could probably appreciate the distance, say, Greg Norman could hit um, a persimmon driver. So when Norman, you know, the 17th of the composite course, the par five, um, could hit persimmon driver off the tee and occasionally persimmon driver off the deck to get it home for two. Like, wow, that was staggering. staggering. Whereas, you know, when Ernie Earls shot 60, he hit a driver and an eight iron or something or other, um, primarily because he's good, but primarily because the technology had obviously changed. So He'd be no less of a player with persimmon. No, it, is the point, exactly. though, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> the, the better players would actually probably exactly be, right. be even better. That's right. Um, so, you know, Norman's driving of a... Persimmon driver, I don't think it was ever equaled in in that that period. Just the sound, David. No. Even on old YouTube videos, yeah. you can hear it. The sound yeah. was something else. I still remember the first time I ever saw Greg Norman play was at a Garden State PGA at Woodlands Golf Club in 1979. My dad used to do a bit of part-time commentary for the ABC back then, and I got sort of dragged along whenever he was working. And I remember seeing Greg Norman hit a driver and a two-iron to Woodlands second, which was a sort of longish par five with the bleach blonde hair and the Wilson bag, and I'm thinking, oh, this guy's a rock star. He's the man, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I think, how, how good's this guy? Um, and followed his career um, pretty pretty closely ever since. And, and you know, he led that 80s boom in, in golf where, you know, people were falling over themselves to, to join golf clubs. We still see the... We still see the results of that today. Adam Scott is what he is and who he is because of Greg Norman in many ways. Mm. Jeff Ogilvie will tell yeah. you the same thing. Robert Allen, yeah. he was a hero to all of yeah. them and because he was such a giant character yeah. uh, in the game. Do we as club golfers, David, realise what it is that the pros can and do do? I'm not convinced. People people get involved in the discussion about the distance and they'll tell you, oh, there's not a problem, it's this or that. And I wonder how many have actually been to the golf course and watched what modern professional golf looks like, as you say, it doesn't resemble anything. No, and, and like, I, and I'm as guilty of that as as probably the next person these days. I'll still watch major men's and women's professional events. Television doesn't do it, though, does it? No, it it's it's the probably out of all the sports, I think that you can watch golf's um, a, a three sixty degree game, and watching it in a two dimensional image never does it justice. And scale. And scale. scale of a golf course can never be and, captured on a screen. Yeah, and topography, all of that stuff, and green speed, and you, you, you just can't. You, you, you've sort of got to get out there and feel it and see it and, and hear it um, to, to get a full appreciation of it. And that's probably why the last Men's Australian Open where I refereed, I was just sort of, wow, the men's professional golf is now so different to what I grew up watching. It's about smashing a drive as far as you can, not really worrying about, Strategically, just just get it, get it down there, get it long. Um, it's funny though; it's, it's it's been a twenty five year evolution. I remember watching Jeff Ogilvie win a Vic Amateur here at Commonwealth of all places in I think it's nineteen ninety eight, 
and he'd been overseas playing um, US amateur events in the lead up to that year's Vic Amateur. And the first hole at Commonwealth's a rel- relatively short par four, about three hundred odd metres, um, designed to be played with a you know either a, a, a good for the good player, you know, like an iron or a three wood or whatever off the tee and a pitch into the green. Anyway, and every round here, Jeff Ogilvie had a, I think he had a big headed drive, one of the big first big headed drivers, and just teed up and just drove the green. And I said, gee, isn't that a risky shot? He said, that's what I learnt playing some of the bigger events in amateur golf in, in America. Now, if you can reach a par four with your tee shot, you go for it. Um, because it's, you know, even out of the greenside bunker or the greenside rough or whatever, it's much easier getting the ball up and down f- from there than it is even from, um, you know, laying back. Lots of people will tell you, lots of people within golf will tell you these days, David, that it's the natural evolution of every sport. Does that hold true for golf, do you uh, think? Well, We don't make the, the net higher in basketball because the guys are getting better at three-point shooting. What are the differences between golf, I guess, and other sports? Yeah, look, true. I, I, I've got no hankering to go back and play with hickory-shafted you know, no. woods and, and – But is got, that what we mean by no, regulating the distance? No, I just think – I think it comes to, a, comes to a point where there needs to be a sensible limit – I suppose, like how far you could have a golf ball that goes 400 metres, maybe. Of course you could. If you, if you, in fact, they probably have probably have got one. Um, and would that make the game any more fun? No. More interesting at the professional, which is ultimately just entertainment. Yeah, true. Um, entertainment, but it also, also should be, you know, um, the, the place where you see the, the very best play. And it's a fine line between, well, is it really the player who's doing the work or is it really the technology that's 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 doing the work? And, you know, tennis is different. I played a bit of tennis as a kid, you know, with wooden rackets and all that sort of stuff. Well, you know, you don't use wooden rackets. The lines don't change in tennis, do they? One of the most – one of the integral parts of golf is the golf course and the players. Yeah, and and when the courses have to change to cope with the technology being used by these elite athletes. And there's no question the the athletes are far better conditioned and prepared now than – You'd hope so, with the information available to them. Exactly. Exactly. And I think golf now attracts um, – it's a sport of choice, whereas when I was at school, it was sort of still viewed as an unusual sport mm-hmm. to do. You know, if, you, you know like if you're good at sport, why aren't you playing footy, cricket, netball, basketball? You know, what are you, what are you doing having a go at golf? Whereas now, it's a legitimate sporting okay. choice. It's an interesting take. I hadn't thought about that that, so, that you know, way. Well, and that was probably one of the things – in fact, one of the really fun events that I, I – love going to still is this we in victoria we've done a state primary school championship oh wow for grade four five and six kids so what sort of age is that just uh probably say 19 11 11? wow yeah um girls and boys and the amount of talent that you see at the state final in that event every year is just unbelievable when did you start that's a fantastic idea for 20 odd years wow Great stuff, um, and it has a whole lot of quality. It's start. It's a participation focus. Mm. Um, so you know, there's very you know nine hole qualifiers all over the state, and it culminates in a in a final, albeit on a reduced size golf course. But the amount of ability that these kids have got. So the game is attracting talented boys and girls to it. We're not just attracting you know people to it because you know they've tried the other sports and they don't like them or whatever. You know, That's it, me. Well, I chose golf because I, I was no good, and B, I did none of the other sports attracted me. No, there's something about golf that was different. Yeah, golf's hard. It's, it is cerebral. Yeah, 
to me, like, you know, you, you, the title of the show, you know, the thing about golf, the thing about golf is it's not easy. I was going to get to that question, so I'm glad, you, I'm glad <laughs> I'd forgotten, so I'm glad you no, brought but, back to it. Um, but that's the challenge of it. Like, I played, my, my primary sports growing up as a kid were footy, and I was much better at footy than anything else, footy and cricket. Um, and I dabbled with golf because my parents had introduced me to it when I was about three, and I'd always played it, but it was not my primary sport. But when we moved from Tassie to Melbourne, like, you know, didn't know anybody, and I was a bit of a shy kid, so it's a bit like, oh, I don't know if I'm, you know, able just to walk into a footy club or a cricket club. Like, I did that a bit later on. But um, I thought, well, I'll just play golf because I can play golf by myself, I, you know. And then I actually then met a whole lot of people who have become lifelong friends by playing junior golf and then sort of just kept playing. And then, the, and then when the game grabs you... Um, think oh this is actually more fun than I realized you know playing golf and this is hard so I like you know most people don't mind a challenge you know you 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 get out of it what you put into it so it teaches you a really good work ethic you know even today you know if if, no point whinging about your your bad golf you might play on any day of the week it's if you're not doing any practice or doing anything to make it better well you get what you get so that's that's really the, the thing about golf. It's really a game that is impossible to master and it just keeps drawing you back in. But as I've gotten older, the the thing about golf are the things that the golf course doesn't offer. It's about playing with people and spending time with people and, and every golfer's got a story, whether it be a work story, a life story, whatever, um, you know, sharing other, you know, interests when you're actually out playing playing a game of golf so and especially after the last sort of 12 18 months that we've all gone through with this um pandemic and being locked in our houses and being denied things that here in melbourne golf was taken away from golf it, golf was taken away here for probably um it's part of six months yeah 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 um and from myself personally i had a whole heap of knee issues last year which compounded um, the, the COVID stuff. So, you know, I, I basically didn't play golf for about four months, combination of COVID and having a crook knee, with, which I've fortunately had fixed. But um, you don't know what you've lost until it's gone. And um, at the end of that lockdown period, the end of the injury period, and then get, being able to get back out there again, the appreciation that you have for it is not just the physical game itself, but it's say, actually... That's probably the least of it, in, in, in yeah, truth. Yeah, it's like this morning, you're sitting having a coffee talking about golf. Um, and, that, and by choice, <laughs> and that, that's that's the thing. That's the thing about that's the thing about golf. So I think going forward for me, um, especially as you get older and you, and you physically don't play as well as you used to, but the game still offers you so much more because it, it really offers you so, social connectivity that most sports you know, just can't, and it offers you a, a, a lifetime involvement. And the way golf handicapping works, and now clubs are getting far better with. Um, courses of different lengths. Um, that's all starting to really gel, isn't it? That, that world handicapping system. That's right. One field, one course. One course. Um, you know, whatever you play off the you know blue tees because you're really good, and I'll play off the green tees because I'm getting older and I'm shorter, and yeah. off we go and we have a comparable game. I'm not falling for that, by the way. We're, we're <laughs> going to play but, golf, David. You can try as much as you like. But, but that's but that's yeah. that's where it, yeah. it's a, a, a special place, and um, you know, the numbers that we're now seeing. Who are re-engaging with the game? People coming back to the sport, people playing more golf than they've probably ever played. Um, like there's this possible concern that it's a bit of a false storm, but I don't think so. I think that society's had a bit of a recalibration as to what's really important. You know, you, you've spent twelve or eighteen months where we've had to 
be locked up inside our houses for good reason. Well, okay, now that we're letting you out again, um, what's what's important to you? How do we make sure it's not a flash in the pan? Because there are some real concerns about that, and partly, and there's a lot of people saying that golf's one of the few industries, this is more an industry or a business mm. The notion and golf is an industry. Ultimately, it employs lots of people, including you and I, in that way. Lots of other industries had to pivot. They were forced to pivot. Mm. Golf, in a funny way, has benefited because they haven't had to pivot. People have come back to it. Mm. So how do we hold on to them this time? We've had the golf boom before and we lost all. Yeah, and I think we. I, I think if I think back to the eighties, and I wasn't working in golf back then, that. I think we just thought that this was, this was just going to keep happening. Exactly right. People were going to keep walking through the door. Clubs were full. Couldn't yeah. get a tea time yeah. at places. Pro so shops I, couldn't keep up with. Yeah, equipment. and all of that. And I, I think this time around, clubs are a much better place from membership options that they can offer people. Uh, I still think we've got um, more work we can do in terms of making our golf clubs and golf facilities as welcoming as they can possibly be, especially to women and kids. Um, an interesting stat I saw recently was that. In the 1970s, the the percentage split between men and women golfers was about 70% men, 30% women, and now it's down to 80% men, 20% women. And That doesn't gel with the rest of society. No, it doesn't, and we've got to get better. Like, golf's got to get better at that. Full, full How step. do we proactively get better at that? It's going to take proactive change, isn't it? Yeah, it From is, and, and Golf Australia's done a lot of really good work um, the Vision 2025 initiative and, and shining a spotlight on women's involvement, involvement in golf in all levels, not just playing, but in administrating positions and so on. I think it, as golfers, we're all custodians of the sport. And the challenge I'd put out there to male golfers is that not just not, you shouldn't just be introducing one other person to the sport. You should be trying to introduce one other female woman or girl doesn't matter what's your family member, friend, work colleague, whatever. Um, get active and and support people getting involved in the sport. I think you know, we we need golfers to be our, our marketers. Like as, as for all the work that Golf Australia does, the PGA does, all the various industry groups do. Golf clubs do themselves. Look, clubs do some fantastic mm-hmm. things. Like you know, here we've got um, women's clinics, junior clinics. You know, golf clubs all over Australia. Mm-hmm. Being, doing that stuff but at the end of the day golfers have to help recruit other golfers and male golfers can just as easily recruit female golfers as they can recruit Mm -hmm. male golfers and like I said I've got you know two daughters and I'll keep trying until I can try no longer to get both of them to um, engage engage with the game and that's that's the challenge I'd have for every male golfer listening. All you're doing is offering women the opportunity to say yes or no to golf exactly which is really Exactly, and anyone can play golf. If you can, if you can, if you can hold a club and swing it, you can play. Sandy Jamison's doing some fabulous work in that way yep. over at Oakley, and we see his tweets on a daily yep. basis about the importance of public yep. golf and the sorts of people who are playing golf. There, his program is a really interesting yep. idea. I wanted to ask you about that because outside of golf, it's always been my belief that the game has an image problem with non-golfers, and I think we see that in a lot of places, with public golf. Now, at the moment, there's a bit of a hoo-ha about Moore Park up in Sydney. Mm. I've written a lot about it. It's a big issue. I know that it's seeped down to here in Melbourne. Mm. Melbourne people are watching that with interest as well. Mm. What does golf need to do? How can golf get on the front foot to explain to people who think golf has no value and just takes up too much space and resources? How do we talk to 
non-golfers? Oh, I think we've just got to keep we've got to tell our story and I think um, you know, James Sutherland's come on as the CEO of, of Golf Australia and he's working really proactively with Gavin Kirkman at the PGA and I think Industry-wise now, we're really getting our act together and we're, we're telling our story. For a long time, I think golf stayed quiet. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the things, you know, things were said about the game which were just not right. But we never did anything to refute that and to say it and to s- s- tell our side of the story too. It's hard to be a we in golf as well in some ways, isn't it? Because it's a very fragmented game. You've got the PGA, you've got Golf Australia, you've got the State Association. I know we've got one golf now, but the yeah. clubs are all their own separate entities. Yeah, but, uh, and by, by, and by the by, by and large, our real estate, our, our sporting fields, if you like, are provided by clubs, yeah. um, and wh- whichever you know public facilities can can be um, had. And you know, space is precious now, especially when you've got you know Melbourne's a city now of over five million people, and and space is at an absolute premium. So I can understand all of that too. But then, th- but there is a benefit going back the other way. Um, you, public court, public golf makes golf affordable for a lot of people. Um, if, whether you, you know, geographically where you where you're located, economically in terms of what resources you've got available to your time, um, you know, just trying to get across a city now of five million people is, mm. is really hard work. Yeah. Um, and time's precious. Probably time is probably the most precious commodity of of all. Um, and that's where you know, having a, a local public facility, especially to take new people to the game in a non-threatening um, you know, environment. Um, and that's probably where you know, clubs need to continually challenge themselves about, well, is our environment um, right for bringing new people to the game? Um, do we put too many barriers up? to stop someone walking through the front gate to want to learn the game and, and feel comfortable being at a, a, a facility. The answers are still all too often yes, I think we'd all agree, but I, I, I do feel like I'm that's getting changing. Better. Yeah, no, look, it's, you know, I think back to when I started playing golf as a kid, you know, if you wanted to come into the clubhouse for a um, for the presentation in the afternoon, you had to put a you know, coat and tie on. <laughs> so, if, And, you know, the short sock. Yeah, you know, oh, um, let's not the short sock. <laughs> relive that debacle stuff from you know, so so dress dress um, regulations and um, uh, you know, even use of technology in clubhouses and things like so th- things are gradually changing, and you know you got to everybody has to move with with the times about well you know it's nice to have a standard but um, let's you know not get too over the top let's Pick let's what standards it is that we're trying to keep yeah on. just let's embrace yeah embrace people like the the beauty of golf is that anyone can play it and you can play it for as long as you can draw a breath so yeah yeah indeed is there a role for private golf in that public golf space um and what might that be because private golf is undoubtedly a beneficiary of public golf and that's where we create golfers generally speaking in the public side and they will many of them go on should they become golfers to join a private facility yeah absolutely like it's all part of the um what would you call it the golf ecological chain like it, you're only ever as strong as your weakest link. And if you've not got people coming in at the grassroots, whether that be in a private setting or a public setting, well, the game's not going to prosper. And and the public setting is essential because it's affordable, it's local, it's where people feel less threatened to give it a go. And um, and that I'd extend that not just to public golf courses but also public driving ranges. Like... Um, I was commenting to someone the other day, I think in Melbourne, for example, um, we probably had 20 or 30 driving ranges in this city 
say, 15, 20 years ago, and I think we're down to about half that number now. A lot of them have been swallowed up by road construction or um, big retail developments and so on. And you know, driving ranges are, are great entry points into mm-hmm. the game for lots of people. Just Particularly some of the new technologies with Top Golf and some of those other yeah. which is more than just whacking a ball into the ether. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, they're, they're facilities that we have to nurture as well because they're very much valid entry points. It's a big ask for somebody just to even rock up to a public golf course if they've never played before to try the game. The game is intimidating enough leaving aside whatever trappings might be going on in the clubhouse. That's, the golf that's right. That's right. I've always thought of golf it's a bit like when you're taught to tie your shoes as a kid like when someone shows you golf for the first time it just seems so foreign and so (laughs) difficult and you think how the hell can I ever do this but with a bit of patience and practice and encouragement you can get to a rudimentary level and then how far you go with it after that kind of up to you in a lot yeah it's a case well how much do you want to put into it and how you 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 know if you if you be patient and you persevere you'll find a natural level and then if you want to go beyond that natural level well then that's up to you but just getting over that um, beginner hump um, is the challenge. I remember my mum telling me, because I, I said to her once, I said, what, what, what do you think is the barrier to more women not getting involved in golf? She said, it's just a really hard game to learn. And, um, you know, that's the other thing that, you know, especially as a male golfer, and I've used this in trying to get my two, two girls to play, so, I've, you know, you just got to keep encouraging keep persevering because yeah for a new golfer it is a challenge and you've just got to just got to keep keep them um, at it for as as long as you can i guess as golfers we probably need to accept this a little bit too i think we can be a bit evangelical those of us who've got the disease of golf in that we assume that it can grab everybody that's not necessarily the case though either it's like you know you know the world would probably be a boring place if we all liked exactly the same things and, and did the did the same things but um yeah, I, when you're passionate about something, you just want others to see and share what what, what, it is what you're passionate about. And, and I like like go, going the thing about golf. The thing about golf is that it's more than just a game. It's it's um, a, a social connection that you really can't put a price on. And that pandemic, as you talked about, that's really I think brought that into sharp focus for an awful lot of people. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like it's you know, it's much nicer talking to you now across a table and no, it's no, on a Zoom Zoom um, screen and and you know being out and being back out on the golf courses again and you know fresh air, wind in your face, you know um, you know birds chirping in trees, etc. So there's all those extra things that we get in golf. You that, forget that they're part of it and that's what you miss. You only ever think of the 32 points you had, whereas now I think you do think of all of those. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I had 32 points, yeah. but who cares about that? That's not important. Yeah, ex- exactly, yeah. exactly. It's 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 a a holistic experience, not just a, a game. You've been around the game for a long time, David. You've seen a lot of changes already, as we've seen. What does the future for golf look like? Do you think? Um, look, I think, I, I think, don't think the game will ever disappear. I've, I've got no fear that it's that it's going to, to die a slow death, but I think it needs to innovate um, and it needs to promote itself better than it's ever ever done before like there's just so much competition now for people's time not just from other sports but just from life um, the device in your pocket exactly you can spend all day every you day spend, yeah you, you can it, um reading so, about golf and never playing it if yeah you wanted to yeah and <laughs> and I, I guess most sports would say the same thing that they want especially yet the younger generations to get off the technology and to put a club or a racket or a bat or a ball or whatever in their hands um 
to do. Look, market forces will probably dictate, you know, um, the facilities. But w- I, I, I think the challenge, the challenge for the game is to, to market and promote itself and to have a steady stream of people taking it up. Um, and, you know, I'm closer to the end than the beginning <laughs> from a golf point of view and from a work-life point of view. But, you know, I see my role as a golfer to, to keep – um, being a, a promoter of it and keep encouraging people to try it. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to um, take it up and, and want to play it, but I've got a fundamental belief in it and um, that's the belief that I just be, would be encouraging all golfers and golf entities to to, to, um, uh, to do. And I, from, a, from a, a, you know, a work perspective, um, you know, I, I see probably, you know, the the best level of collaboration between the game's amateur body and professional body taking place now. So For the first time in a long time, it feels legitimate, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, very much so. And, and um, both bodies will be moving into the Australian Golf Centre at Sandringham in July this year um, and living and working and operating out of the, the same facility, being able to present in a unified way what the game's development program should look like at the Sandringham facility. Um, which will be fantastic, so whether you're just a casual golfer coming off the street hit a bucket of balls or a, a good player from a state coming down to do some work in the high performance centre. You, you know, you're going to be, you know, you're going to have state of the art facilities, which I never thought I'd actually see in my time in golf. Um, golf enjoying a, a national centre the, mm-hmm. the same way that most other sports have enjoyed for for quite some some time. So I think that's a a great achievement for. You know, Golf Australia, the PGA, Golf Victoria, the Victorian government who've helped you know support the development of that. That's that's really doing golf a, a great service. It probably seems like a small thing, but the ability for James Sutherland to go walk out of his office and go down and talk to Gavin Kirkman, and Gavin Kirkman to walk out of his office and go and talk to James Sutherland, you can't put a price on the potential value of that. To have a coffee each morning or once a week. Oh, or- well, you've got both you know, the staff coming together in terms of um, you know, whichever aspect of the game you're working on. And there, there are subtle differences between what each body mm. does, and there always has been and there always will be. Always will be, as um, it should be. Yeah, and you know, from my point of view, you know, I've grown up the son of a, a golf club professional. So you know, my father's 87 now, so he's had a you – know, Probably turned trainee when he was seventeen. So, and he's seventy years. So, ago. so, he, so I've, but I've, I've lived it and seen it. I've seen what it's been like to, um, uh, to work in a in a club golf environment. It was, it's funny. Like when Dad was the club pro at Huntingdale, I was doing my uni um, courses back then. So at the same time I was going to uni, I was working part time in my father's shop. So I probably got a parallel education at working <laughs> in a golf club, as well as working um, or doing the university studies the the rest of the time. And a lot of the you know, a lot of the stuff that, that you learn, the people that you meet, and the conversations you have with golfers over the the counter in a pro shop um, or down on the range picking up balls on a Saturday afternoon. Um, they're, they're lessons that you you take with you for the at least as valuable as anything you learn at university in many ways. Well, because they're real. Pro, well, pro, yeah, it, uh, uh, just just listening to golfers and and hearing what concerns them and what they're thinking about um, the game and what could be you know how the club could do this better or how my game could be better if I could do. So yeah, it was it was a really um, interesting experience. So yeah, though that that's going to happen. Um, organically yeah. by working out of the same facility. So I've got a lot of confidence about where the game's going from 
an administration perspective, and you know, there's you know, there's a lot of good people involved. So you got to we have can't faith afford in that. not to anyway. We're now in a position where golf can't afford not to work together. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. And and the challenge, like I said, the challenges that that golf faces from every other sport and other stuff is never been never been higher. Um, but I, like I said, I don't have any fear for the game. You know, if we could come back in a time capsule in one hundred years, two hundred years, I'd, I'd be horrified if golf didn't golf exist. didn't exist. No. As a, as a my co-host on another podcast, like today, his dad used to say, "If golf didn't exist, someone would invent it." <laughs> it's important. Well, that's, yeah, well, that's, <laughs> that's that's exactly right. It's and true. and you know, as an industry, we've got to be dynamic and agile and, and move with the times and and make it affordable and protect the public spaces and protect the the um, the you know the best of the best private spaces because people will. Well, well, golfers always want to find somewhere to call home. The fundamental appeal of the game, I don't think, has ever changed. It's exactly the same now for us as it was for young and old Tom Morris. Yep. It's exactly the same. It hasn't changed. Yep. A lot of change around it, but it, yep. it itself hasn't yeah. changed. And they're, they're beautiful places, golf courses. So. They are. They're wonderful green spaces. Yeah. You know, we often hear this, oh, we want to convert this to green space. Well, it's already green space. It's already space, green people. space. You're exactly just whacking right. a ball around yeah, that's it. Exactly you, right. you only hit it sort of 70 to 100 times around, depending on how good you are. <laughs> So there's plenty of time to to admire. What yeah, it is that's exactly right, and maintain what is it? Yeah, golf courses are actually great places for for flora and fauna, better than a lot of city council-owned parks and whatnot. That's a whole other discussion, which we don't need to get into, David. <laughs> it has been absolutely fabulous to catch up with you today. I've wanted to have this discussion. Did we talk on my podcast all those years ago after the first vicar? I know we had Simon Brookhouse on. I think you might have joined in. Yeah, perhaps. no, you you, I, you did talk nine to nine years. Yeah, the nine nine years. So I think you did talk to Simon, and I might have been listening in in on the background. Background Maybe. there, but yeah, the 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 Vic opens the sort of shiny thing that that, that people see. But to me, the journey in golf's been about um, connecting with golfers of all levels, and I've been really fortunate to travel, you know, most parts of Victoria to golf clubs, big and small, and um, running events, doing rules nights for um, for people, and all of that sort of stuff. So that that's the memories I'll take away from golf will be about people that the golfers they're they're a really wonderful group of people i can almost guarantee everybody listening will be a golfer and if you're not you might want to seek some help there might be something (laughs) wrong there but i think all of us understand that golf is much more than just a small part of most people's lives Mm. it really does change things for my whole life has been immersed in golf yeah exactly and that's why you know a nice way to probably finish up is to just encourage golfers it can be a really selfish game we can get too sucked into you know how we play is 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 how it is but um certainly i've my attitude to golf is is evolved and never more so than the last sort of 12 18 months as we were talking um you know and i've probably got a renewed sense of duty that i need to you know keep promoting this sport for as long as i can and get more people to play it Let's all introduce somebody else yep. to the thing about golf. Yep. Absolutely. Fabulous to chat, David. Thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for episode 40. And a special thanks to David, who took time out on a Sunday to be a part of that interview. That was exceedingly generous of him. Now, I hope you've taken the time to subscribe to the show because you will not want to miss episode 41 when John Huggan sits down with two-time US Open winner, Curtis Strange. That's next time on The Thing About Golf. Golf.